Welcome to BSD Talk number 187. It's Sunday, March 28, 2010. I just have an interview for you today, so here it is. Today on BSD Talk, we're speaking with Sam Smith. Welcome to the show. Hiya. And I met you at EuroBSDCon in Cambridge this, this past year. And I thought it'd be nice to get you on the show and talk a little bit about BSD conferences and also how you work with the BSDs. So I guess first... Could you describe your involvement in EuroBSDCon? I have been sort of heavily involved for a number of years with the UK Unix user group back since sort of the late 90s. And we, it runs a set of conferences. And uh, at an event I was running in Manchester about two years before EuroBSDCon, um, I ended up sitting between Robert Watson and Paul Henkamp at dinner. And we ended up talking about how it would be good if EuroBSDCon came back to the UK. Because back in 2001, the first EuroBSDCon was held here, organized by a number of the FreeBSD developers who were in the UK. And EuroBSDCon wanders around Europe in that it's generally not organized by the same core people from one year to the next, but it sort of is more like a relay race with the baton getting handed on from year to year. And um, people were thinking, should come back to the UK, and were looking for someone to do some of the more logistics work because running a conference of this size has, you get the speakers, but if you have 150 people coming for a conference, that's a fair bit of logistics work. And that's what UKUG is actually relatively good at running a variety of conferences at throughout the year so sort of Robert and Paul and sort of said well we're happy to help with speakers but we're looking for somebody to do the organization and this is a very well organized conference and it's like thank you then realized what I'd said so that's how I sort of got involved and that was running a UBSD con takes or for us took about two years from deciding to do it to the actual event so at venue and various things were sorted out so it was announced at the previous event, the pre- well, the event the previous year, and we had a year of um, doing it, and then it happened. And I, I imagine that most people don't see everything that goes on behind the scenes, and does all that work prevent you from actually participating in the conference or listening to many of the talks? It varies. Um, one of the things about this conference, it had a not a, not a large organizing team, but a sort of there were a number of people doing different bits at different times. So Robert Watson was sorting out all, doing most of the work, talking to speakers, saying this person would talk on this topic and they'd be good at that. And so it was a case of mostly getting sort of things running. And once the conference has actually started, there were, and the speakers have shown up, there were a relatively small number of things that can catastrophically go wrong. And if they do, often it's hard to actually fix them. If the building catches fire, there's not much you can do about it as an event organizer other than sort of try not to look too stressed as you leave the building. But it's sort of, 
generally you can go to what you want. I went, I went to a selection of talks. And one of the nice things about event organizers is you can arrange for them to be recorded. So if you're not going to get to it, you can at least listen to it afterwards. And we did manage to record at least the mainstream. Do you think that having a conference that moves around to various countries makes it difficult to have a stable core team of organizers? It makes it different. And um, Robert Watson being somebody who seems to have far more hours in the day than most people do does seem to sort of stay involved in a in some way most years because he runs the Dev Summit, which is attached or usually attached to the conference, um, so has involvement that way. But one of the things, you get the downside of it's different people and there's efforts behind the scenes to sort of increase some of the consistency and at least make different mistakes from year to year rather than sort of not learning lessons. But equally... Since it is a very different team each time, you get a very different feel of the event, and it changes a lot. I was at—I didn't make Frankfurt, which was 2008, but at Copenhagen, that was a very different feel of event because it was the events reflect the style and feel of the organisers, and in some ways, Cambridge was very much a UK UG style event, and Copenhagen was sort of slightly different just because of the people who organize it run and are interested in slightly different things. And I think that's a strength for the conference. It's also slightly a weakness, but it goes both ways. And where is the next EuroBSD con going to be held? It's going to be held in Karlsruhe, Germany. Um, I think in October, but I would have to look that up. And as somebody who has organized one of these conferences, do you have any advice for people who would like to become involved? Does it require that they live in Germany, or are there usually opportunities for people from around the world to contribute? Oh, the next one is the 8th to the 10th of October uh, in Karlsruhe, Germany. Um, there are many, many ways to contribute. If you just offer a paper, that is a contribution without which the conference effectively does not happen. So if you have, if you are doing something interesting with BSD and wish to talk about it, that is a good contribution. If you're just attending, often on the first day there's lots of things that need doing, there's registration, an extra pair of hands are always helpful. And if you've sort of been to one and are sort of interested in getting involved, one of the things about conferences like this is we always would like more organisers and more useful people are good. And as with many other aspects of BSD, if you sort of get involved and do things, you generally get punished by being given more work to do. If you offer to be helpful, generally people won't say no because there is far more to do than there is time for. And there's always more that could be done if we had more time. How much of a role does sponsorship play in the success of these conferences? Sponsorship in some ways varies between... Um, style, but if you're pe- if you need to pay for speaker flights, and you need to pay for a venue, and you need to pay for accommodation for speakers and and sort of organisers and paying for lunch, it costs a certain amount for the event to happen plus an amount per person, and that money comes from somewhere. It either comes from delegate fees or it come and all those get subsidised by sponsorship so that we can 
instead of there being a an amount in the delegate fee which goes to um, speaker accommodation, it comes from sponsorship. So sponsorship just reduces the cost of everybody attending, which which significantly increases the number of people who can attend, or subsidizes cheaper student places, or it gives you a lot more options. One of the things that we do, attending a conference is not that cheap. When If you have to fly, you have to pay for accommodation, and sort of that starts to reduce the number of people who can come. Is there a lot of exchange rate risk when putting these together? It varies um, depending on which country you're in. Um, UK does have its own currency, which makes some things somewhat interesting. Um, certainly the US sponsors tend to want to sponsor in dollars, not pounds. But sponsorship usually works far enough, in a, far enough ahead that you actually know roughly how much you're going to get and the money is, has arrived in plenty of time. Um, so that it's not sort of arriving post-event. It's, it, it's sort of, you know how much it is before you have to spend it. And you can gen- generally make reasonably educated guesses. Taking a, a broader view away from, from your OBSDCon and, and talking more about the UK Unix Users Group, does your involvement in that group give you some perspective on popularity is a controversial word, but I guess the interest in the various versions of Unix and how has BSD fared over the years in, in the interest in, in the different kinds of um, activities that go on with this users group? One of the things we have found is that there are generally two categories. There are people who use any operating system to do their job and they use it to get stuff done. And that's their primary focus. There are also people who are much more evangelistic and would like quite happily talk to you for as long as you can, you know, avoid running away uh, about whatever it is that they are interested in. And generally, the first group is much, much bigger than the second, but the second is much more vocal. So there's sort of what you see and what you hear and the two sometimes don't quite match. And certainly we found that UKG, the last membership survey I saw, had there's still a lot of Solaris being used. There's still a lot of the commercial unices. Less and less, but they're still being used and they're still useful whereas you don't certainly hear that much about them in the certainly technical press circles that I tend to read online. So there are different groups for different um, different areas. And, of course, Linux is highly popular in all of its different guises, and that is probably the biggest area for individual interest, um, which is probably a surprise to absolutely nobody. I I like the idea of a more general Unix users group as opposed to something that's specific to just Solaris or Linux or the BSDs, just because there's so much in common. And for me, I'm always interested in seeing how the various versions of Unix handle similar problems or what their different management interfaces are or, you know, some of their different strengths and weaknesses. 
Yeah. UKOG was formed in 1976, so it's been around for 34 years. And it's sort of, in some ways, it's not changed a huge amount since then. In other ways, it's completely different. But it's funded by its members to be completely independent of hardware and software vendors. And its profits self-sustain it and keep it going. And that direction changes sort of in the mid-90s. There was a something that started out as the Linux Special Interest Group and ended up getting disbanded because Linux wasn't a special interest anymore. Um, and the Linux Special Interest Group, most people in the organization were part of it, so it sort of stopped needing to be its own separate thing. And for a long time, UKG ran a Linux summer conference, and that's now getting merged into other things. And so it evolves over time as new systems come on board and equally it still supports and has the same interest um, that its members have. So as you have um, lots of people interested in Solaris, there is still that Solaris interest there. It's representative of its members in the variety of fields and what they do and the general thing that ties it together is Unix and Unix-like systems without tying them particularly to any one specific system. So assuming that Unix and open systems style keep going, there is no reason that UKUG would not continue to be relevant in another 34 years. What version of Unix brought you to that group? In the sort of late 90s when I was an undergraduate, uh, I was heavily involved in the computer society and we had a Linux server that had various problems and one of the solutions that everyone liked, thought would work, and we talked about for a while um, was, well, we could move it to FreeBSD because that won't, it, it would cope with, I think it was multiple processes and various other strange things that we were trying to do back when those things were new. And so sort of at some point it's like, there's a new version of FreeBSD out, which I think was 3.0. And we'll move to that. It's like, okay. And we assumed that everyone else had spent more time looking at various documents than each of us had. So we started this migration. About six hours in, we realized the reason that we couldn't find the drives of the home directories was that the SCSI card was supported in the previous version, which was probably 3. something but wasn't currently supported in four-point-something because there have been some infrastructure changes and that card hadn't um, caught up yet. And this was about 2 a.m. in the morning. So we decided that given that we'd got the file systems kind of reformatted and NetBSD would read them, it would also have this experimental support for the file, sy- file system, um, the XT2 file system, and it also had support for the SCSI card, which was kind of important, we'd put that on and see what happened. And it came up and it kind of worked and we went to sleep and it started to, let's say, show some stability issues. So we ended up switching back to Linux on that machine for a few months until the card was supported. So that was an interesting lesson on compatibility lists. And we'd we'd spent a lot of time trying to get from an installed system to something that mostly just did what we needed to do. And around that time, I was looking for a 
new laptop or my first laptop and sort of thinking, putting BSD on it and after the fun with free and net, it's like, let's just try open, grab the CD, stick it in, install it. And that, and around the same time, somebody was digging a trench near the building and removed the big warning sign on top of the main, the mains power feed and carried on digging. I don't quite know how to describe hearing the entire building, which is a computer building, so we had a lot of computers in it and a lot of servers, completely powering down for about three seconds. But it was sort of one of those things that you just looked up and went, what just happened? And sort of for most of the rest of the afternoon, I ended up um, sort of working alternately off this laptop that had been installed for about three hours. And, and at the end, I realized that all the stuff I actually needed was already on there. So, or I'd installed it from ports in about in about two hours without actually realizing that all hell was about to break loose. So I ended up using OpenBSD a lot. I had it, I had it on my desktop. I tend to run OpenBSD servers most of the time now. I have one FreeBSD box that sits somewhere and is a jail machine from um, Exanatric who are really quite helpful. So it's sort of mainly OpenBSD, but I can find my way around free and net, which is how I ended up sort of, well, how I ended up with BSD and um, then found my way onto the IRC channel and various other things and didn't really leave. And do you have an opportunity to use the BSDs in your professional life? Most of my work I work for a university um, and tend to get research problems. People come to my office and go, can we do this? And it's like, yes, here's how, or they, can you do this for me? And a, a couple of like, a lot of it, a lot of what I do is Perl, so it will be cross-platform, but the ability to install anything from ports is helpful. And one of the things I do tend to do at work is, not stay with current all the time, but usually update three or four times a year, um, just so I've got latest latest ports, basically, rather than necessarily things in base. But it's sort of what I often do is just download a snapshot, leave it 24 hours so that if a new snapshot appears, there might have been something wrong with that one. But just grab a snapshot, stick it on what is my main workstation, and one command to upgrade all the ports and packages on the machine. And I'm still working and it, it doesn't break, which is extremely useful. Just that I have that level of trust in the system that I can effectively upgrade everything on the machine and it still works. Do you find that there's anything beneficial or problematic with using the BSDs as your foundation for your Perl work? I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. I don't know. It, it's never been an issue. And in, in that it's never been an issue, I guess that there is no problem with it. But I'm not quite sure. Uh, I can see that some things might be a problem, given that OpenBSD ships Perl in base. And if you wanted multiple Perls, that might get interesting. But certainly I use whatever the OpenBSD version is. And if it changes in base, all the packages update themselves as well. So you don't ever end up with 
a problem where you're depending on an old version of Perl that isn't there anymore or an interface has changed. The whole thing is a whole which stays consistent, which is actually given I use it for not production but sort of semi-production staging type stuff is quite helpful. Do you contribute ports and packages back to OpenBSD? I think I used to submit more than I have done in the last couple of years, but that's just down to at some point you tend to start just putting the same things together in different ways rather than bringing in new modules. And as the OpenBSD ports team seems to have got a little larger, um, there are people who do more select more cutting-edge stuff than I do now, so it's I don't need... If I need a module, the chances are it's already there, not something I need to start with porting and installing. Are you a lone wolf at the university, or do you find that there are some other people out there who are, who are also using some of the BSD systems? I work in a small research group, so at that level, the I work in, at the first instance, a technical team of one, but there's a lot of support available. If, if I ha- don't have a problem, I generally know who to talk to elsewhere. And there are all sorts of things running. Linux is very popular, BSD machines, and generally, certainly for technical staff, the university doesn't particularly uh, impose anything. So if you, as long as you, so for research staff, if you do your job, that's what they pay you for. That's great. It's nice that your your interest in Unix and the BSDs led you to help out with the conferences. It It was a great experience and I, and I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I, I want to thank you for all the effort that you put into the conference. It, it was really, I mean, the venue was helpful too. It was beautiful. Yep. <laughs> uh, uh, but all in all, it seemed like a great conference. Yeah. We had a lot of people sort of involved and it's sort of one of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize is that these things happen because people offer to help. And if you're interested in something like that and, Either there were planning meetings that sometimes are announced, and we didn't do this for UOBSDCon, but if you see that it's happening, if you go along and offer to help out, generally the answer will be yes. These things always need more people. And it's if you're sort of, if it's close to an event, just sort of drop the organizer an email and go, I'm coming. If you need a hand with anything, I'm happy to help. Is an email as, as an organizer is, is very, very nice to receive. And oftentimes the answer will be no at that point, but it's nice to keep those um, sort of in a mail folder so that when you suddenly realize you're going to need some extra help, you can go, is that office still open? And that's how conferences work. A lot of the BSD conferences are run by volunteers for other BSD volunteers and interested parties, and that's where we get to. Are there any other topics that you wanted to talk about today? Well, the only other... Um, little thing is that if if there's no big BSD conference near where you are, one of the little things that some friends and I started back in January 2002 was something called the Manchester BSD User Group, which is a group of friends who went to the pub every month. And we, we knew kind of each other, or there's generally an existing sort of connection between people. But it was just a case of, People who were going to be in the pub talking about technical stuff anyway just invited other people to come along. If, if this is where we are, this is roughly what we're talking about. If you want to come to the pub on a, it's now a Thursday evening, and that's run, but been run by 
succession of people for eight years now. Or if you're going anyway and are interested in other local technical people coming along to sort of make more friends, all you need to do is just drop an email to the FreeBSD users list so that if anybody Googles wherever it is you are, free uh, BSD user, they will find that and can drop you an email. And it's sort of, if there's no existing group near you, that's a relatively easy way of starting something at almost no effort. Because if it's you and some friends already and you're already in the pub, you don't lose anything if nobody else comes because you're meeting people you already know and would be there anyway. All right. Well, thanks for taking some time to talk to us today and look forward to maybe seeing you at one of the next conferences. Yep, look forward to seeing you. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk number 187.